Right, let's look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Because there are some short words we need to hear before that. Starting in verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Lord, I ask for your blessing now as I seek to preach your word. I thank you, God, that it is living and active. And as this is a short text, I pray you would help us to pay attention and not move too quickly through it. I need your strength. We need your wisdom. I pray that I would decrease and you would increase in your name. Amen. How many of you know what the acronyms ISFJ, ENTP, or ESFJ mean? John, are you confused? Good, good. You might not know what they all reference, but it is a personality test. Yeah, how many of you knew that? Okay, so widespread, good, that's helpful, you'll track with this. Uh, That means at least a number of you are already familiar with the wide world of personality tests, in particular the the Myers-Briggs test. Do not come up to me afterward and ask what I am, okay? (laughs) I'm not going to give that to you. I'll let you guess. The popularity of these tests doesn't surprise me, And and I think they've become more popular in recent years. According to the Myers-Briggs Foundation, knowing what they call your type indicator has all kinds of benefits. Uh, Here's a couple on their website. It can help you make better decisions. It can help you communicate more effectively, manage and prevent stress, set and achieve goals, build strong relationships, and focus your career plans. Uh, there, There are obvious benefits to knowing your personality type. But I would also argue Next to those benefits are some lurking dangers with the whole enterprise. First, we can think, friends, if we're not careful, that the search for meaning is ultimately self-referential. So that the classical liberal tradition by liberal, I don't mean Democrat, okay? The classical liberal tradition in which, which American culture has steeped for centuries says what? That meaning isn't found outside of us. It's found where? Within us. By looking within us. So know thyself has become the holy grail of human flourishing. And Christianity says the exact opposite of that. Exact opposite of that. If you want to know what is true and good and right, if if you want to discover meaning in the midst of a crazy world, don't look first within yourself. Look to the God who created you. John Calvin got it right when he said, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. And then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. You've got to get that order right, friends.
Because who we really are and discerning whether that is actually true or good or right, that requires, that's only discernible in the light of our Creator. In the light of His purity and His glory. Meaning isn't self-centered, it's God-centered. You've got to remember that. Okay, here's the second potential danger if, if we find ourselves obsessed with personality tests. Okay, I hope you don't hear this as Matthew's kind of railing on them, but, but, but they play into some dangers if we're not careful. Okay, here's the second one. We can start to believe that who we are is intrinsically worthy of acceptance. Whereas God says who we are is in desperate need of transformation. Does that make sense? Is there anything wrong with knowing you tend to be introverted, intuitive, thinking, and judging? Of course not. Okay, but if we're not careful, we can go even further than that and start to think and act like our greatest need is to be accepted for who we are. And then, lo and behold, we turn God into the ideal lover. He accepts me for who I am, And he never makes any demands on me contrary to my personality. Unlike all the haters out there. So stop criticizing me and start loving me for who I am, just the way I am, because that's what God does. You ever heard that? Sense that? Maybe thought that. Well, 2 Corinthians 3.18 commends a radically different vision. Listen. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, God's goal for your life, friend, isn't to make you more like you, it's to make you more like Him. Those are not the same thing. Does God love you right now, no matter where you are, what's going on, or what you're going to do this week? Yes. Does that love entail accepting you for who you are and saying it's all good? No. No. God's goal is to make you more like him. And therein lies your greatest good and God's greatest glory. So, don't come to God's word asking him to fill your love cup with a therapeutic affirmation that whatever you are right now is beautiful. Don't do that. Come to God's word asking him to love you by transforming you more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what love does. Because when we become more like Jesus, think about this, the one we were created to image and whose image we were created, that we actually become more really and truly human. In these verses, chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, the Lord reveals his transformative will for our lives. 
a changing kind of will, a loving with agenda kind of will in the form of three simple commands. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Please notice that's not an option. If it fits with your personality type, have at it. No, it's, it's not an invitation. You know, consider joy, prayer, and gratitude if other approaches to life haven't worked for you. No, what is it? It's a command. It's an instruction from your creator. In other words, if you claim to be a Christian, the letters J, P, and G should always show up in your personality test. What's that? Enduring joy, persistent prayer, abiding gratitude. Always. And and lest, because I can feel this even saying that, lest we despair over their present lack in our life, if we're being honest, take heart in this front. This is the main point of the whole thing, I think. The good news of the gospel is that what God requires of us in Christ Jesus, God supplies to us through Christ Jesus. Okay? You got to know that. The good news of the gospel is that what God requires of us, of you, in Christ Jesus, is the exact same thing he supplies to you through Christ Jesus. So look at 18 because this final little phrase is the key to the whole thing we're going to do this morning. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's because of Jesus. Because of who he is and what he's done for us that a Christian should be characterized by three things. Very simple outline this morning. What should characterize a Christian because of who Jesus is and what he's done? First, enduring joy. Enduring joy. Look at verse 16. Paul instructs this fledgling church in Thessalonica to what? To rejoice always. Okay, to rejoice is to choose a decision of the will whereby we choose to actively delight in something or someone. That's what it means to rejoice. And, and we tend to think, let's be honest, right? We tend to think of joy as an emotion over which we have no control. So it comes spontaneously, right? It leaves spontaneously. To tell someone, rejoice! It seems about as genuine as hiring mourners for a funeral. Or pasting a happy fake smile on your face at church when you're actually miserable on the inside. Rejoice can seem emotionally dishonest at best. And yet, look at verse 16. There it sits. Two words. An unmistakable command. From the Lord to us as his people, rejoice always. No exceptions. And it first glance, looks so simple. But then you, you slow down and start to think about that and you, and you think, Paul, do you realize what you're saying? I mean, let's be honest. Who among us perpetually feels joyful? Rejoice always? What in the world? I was talking with a friend of mine a few months ago who just humbly confessed he feels like he has no time for joy. <laughs> I get that. And yet, the collective 
witness of the entire Bible reveals that joy is not optional for the people of God. It's required and commanded by God over and over and over again. Deuteronomy 12 verse 12, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. 1 Chronicles 16, 10, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Psalm 32 verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Zephaniah 3, 14, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Consistent shall we say? And I think three things are clear from those passages and a a multitude like them, okay? First, God clearly requires all of us to be joyful. Joy is not an optional emotion for certain personality types. Second, the joy God requires from us is consistently God-centered. Did you notice that? God, in other words, isn't like an emotional junkie. You know, wherever he just sees cool, joyful emotions. Awesome! You know, no. No, the object of our joy matters. Did you notice we're repeatedly commanded to rejoice in the Lord? Why? Because it is your joy in the Lord, friend, more than anything else in your life that holds forth to the world the true worth and weight of the glory and goodness of God. Every good gift we enjoy in this world, every one of them, is ultimately designed to deepen our gladness in the one from whom all blessings flow. Third, the joy God requires is an act of the will. So I said this earlier, it may feel spontaneous, but, but notice it's not passive. The very fact that God commands us to rejoice implies what? Not rocket science here, that it's something we can choose to do or not do. So does that mean we have to rejoice even in the darkest and most difficult circumstances? Yeah. That's exactly what God's saying. And here's where this little phrase at the end of verse 18 I mentioned earlier starts to make all the difference. Notice Paul does not simply say in verse 18, for this is the will of God. If you've read your Bible, you are, we, we already know that's the will of God. It's clear God's will is for us to rejoice. We know that. God requires joy. But Paul doesn't stop there. What does he say? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Listen, friend. Joy is God's will for you in Christ Jesus because it is through God the Son that God the Father affects his gladsome will for your life. Through Jesus, God gives us joy. Not a bite-sized joy or a fleeting joy, but the enduring joy God himself enjoys. Think about that. Jesus said to his disciples, John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Why? Because it's God's joy. And notice in that verse, look at that verse, John 15, 11. 
how Jesus connects two things. The words he speaks to us and the joy he affects within us as a result of speaking those words. So, that begs the question, what exactly are these words, these things Jesus has spoken to us, that enable us to rejoice? Well, let's back up in John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Translation, the things Jesus has spoken to us that affect, that bring to fruition God's gladsome will for our life is first and foremost an invitation from Jesus to enjoy a relationship with God. To to abide in his love for us, right? And what makes that kind of relationship possible? The love Jesus demonstrated by laying down his life for us, by giving us the gift of himself. Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave to do what? To make right all that sin has made so terribly wrong. Starting with our broken relationship with God. And a restored relationship with God through Jesus gives us joy because it's only in God's presence, okay, in knowing and loving and serving him that we discover a fullness of joy in that relationship that nothing in this world can take away. You'll only find that in relationship with God. Psalm 16 verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Notice whose presence that is. It's not the presence of your spouse. Some of you are like, I know that. (laughs) It's not the presence of your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's not the presence of, of, of the world's best job. Or the world's, your bucket list vacation or the best video game, or unrestricted screen time. It's in your presence. God's presence. There is fullness of joy. And God God accomplishes his will for our lives through Jesus. What's his will? Rejoice always. Because Jesus is the one who brings us to himself and fills us with his joy. That's why Paul could say, rejoice always, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. But I think that raises a massive problem. Namely, the fact that even as Christians who who have a gift of relationship with God, there are a lot of days where we don't feel joyful at all. What do we do with that? The, the, whole, the whole rejoice always thing can just start to feel entirely out of reach. Your friend, maybe you concluded that a decade ago 
You just said, you know what? I, I, I get it. Rejoice, rejoice. I'm supposed to feel things toward God. It ain't happening. I'm not asking. I'm just going to come to church and, you know, do my thing. What do we do when rejoice always feels like an exercise in discouragement? Well, if that's you, friend, you need to know two things, okay? I want you to listen very, very carefully to me right now. First, the presence of joy does not entail the absence of sorrow. The presence of joy doesn't entail, mean, the absence of sorrow. Well, what does Paul say to the church in Corinth? 2 Corinthians 6.10 We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're in 2 Corinthians 7.4 In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. To which I say, which one is it? Smart guy. <laughs> which one is it? Were, were, were you sorrowful or were you rejoicing? Were you afflicted or were you overflowing with joy? To which Paul says what? Yes. Yes. To both. Which Jesus also says. Ever think about that? Hebrews 1 verse 9. Speaking of God the Son. God, Father, has anointed you, Jesus, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus overflowed with joy. There has never been a human being more joyful than Jesus. And yet, Isaiah 53 tells us he was also a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So, so if Jesus, think about the, the significance of this. If Jesus was a man of sorrows, why should we think that any of us who are seeking to follow him are going to feel any different? right? And yet churches and communities are full of professing Christians who still try and subtly or not so subtly pressure others to follow their example. And so it goes something like this. How how are you doing? I am great. Couldn't be better. I am done with grieving and mourning and all those other emotions that get people down. I am choosing joy. I am speaking life. I'm not sick. I'm on the road to healing. I'm not suffering. I'm about to win a victory. Friend, don't do that. Don't do that. Why? Because rejoicing in the Lord doesn't mean ignoring or denying our sorrows. It means choosing to actively delight in Jesus Christ in the midst of all our sorrows. That's what Paul's talking about. We've got to remember the presence of, joy does, presence of joy doesn't entail the absence of sorrow. Okay, second thing we've got to remember. If this is a struggle for you, while we cannot make ourselves feel joyful... Did you catch that? While we cannot make ourselves, come on, rejoice. You know? Sometimes I, I just am humbled as a parent when I find myself saying to my boys, how do you need to obey? 
all the way right away in a cheerful way. Come, try it again. Be cheerful. A little more cheerfulness. And then I suddenly have a light bulb moment, an aha moment, Priya. And I think, you idiot. That is precisely what God expects. But since when have you been able to make yourself do anything cheerful? I can't make myself feel joyful. doesn't mean I'm not supposed to be. But we can choose where we will look to find joy. Listen very carefully. We are always looking for delight in something or someone. Always. You, you can't be alive as a human being and not do that. You're hardwired for that. So, we can do that even when we're filled with sorrow because we lack the chosen object of our delight, right? So, money can be the object of our delight even when we don't have any. Sex can be the object of our delight even when we're not getting any. The approval of man can be the object of your delight even when nobody likes you. And so to rejoice in the Lord means what? It means we choose to seek after our joy in him instead of something or someone else. We we continue to fix our thoughts on him and nurture our affections for him by, by reading and meditating on his word where he reveals his goodness for all to see. Even as we're waiting to feel the joy that we know we ought to feel and that we long to feel. We say with David in Psalm 63, 1, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly. I don't seek all this stuff. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you. I fixed my eyes on you. I'm not feeling any joy right now, but I am looking to you right now. In the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Do do you realize, friend, at this point in the psalm, David has yet to experience anything that feels like joy. And yet, what is he doing? He's seeking after it. He's he's fighting for it by choosing to keep the glory of God's self-revelation right in front of his eyes. Think of it this way. You can't make yourself feel awe but you can decide if you are going to stare at your belly button or the Grand Canyon. Think about that. You can't make yourself feel awe, but you can decide, are you going to stare at your belly button or at the Grand Canyon? In the same way, you can't make yourself feel joy, but you can decide whether you will look elsewhere or if you will remain in the purifying stream of God's word waiting for him to do what only he can do. You can do that. And to the degree we fail to rejoice always, and we hear a sermon like this and think, Lord, I am not rejoicing always, what do we do? We cry out for God's forgiveness, right? Because it's not a personality thing, it's a command. Because anytime we are less than joyful in God, we are emotionally lying to the world around us that he is not as good as he says he is. That's not just, I have a different four-letter personality. That's sin, friend. 
We need to ask for his forgiveness. And then we need to cry out to the Holy Spirit over and over again for eyes, spiritual eyes, to see Jesus for who he really is so we might rejoice in him for who he is even in our suffering. 1 Peter 1.8 Though you have not yet seen him in fullness, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Big picture. The joy God requires of us in Christ Jesus, God supplies to us through Christ Jesus. A Christian should be characterized by what? Enduring joy. Point one. Point two, look at verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. I think like the first exhortation, this one can be easily misunderstood, so we do well to start with the definition. To pray simply means to talk to God. Think about that. It doesn't require a special voice. It doesn't require special vocabulary. It it can be as simple as a child. Help, Dad. It can be as complex as your deepest sorrow. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen: I am poured out like water, the psalmist prays. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breath. And when Paul says pray without ceasing, he doesn't mean all you should do ever is talk to God. As if real Christians do nothing but pray. I will warn you, one of, there is great benefit of reading Christian biography. There is also great danger. (laughs) The benefits outweigh the dangers, but the dangers are there. And one of them is, you can read about somebody who, well, I got up at 4 a.m. every morning and prayed for three and a half hours. God did amazing things in my life. And you think to yourself, I'm just going to bed at 4 a.m. because my kid's been up all night. (laughs) Oh, well, I guess I'm consigned to God never doing amazing things in my life. No, okay? When when Paul says, pray without ceasing, it's an example of hyperbole. Where where an author does what? He deliberately exaggerates to help us grasp his point. So in this case, to pray without ceasing, I think, means at least two things. First, being a Christian requires a lifestyle of prayer. A lifestyle of prayer. So in the same way that a close relationship with a friend or spouse or a good relationship with a coworker requires what? A pattern of communication. You need to communicate more. So too, a relationship with God requires a pattern of consistent prayer. If, if breathing keeps your physical body alive, sustains life in your physical body, it's prayer that sustains life in our souls. It's an ongoing thing, a a continual thing, a pouring out all of my heart to all of God throughout all the day kind of thing. As Psalm 62, 8 says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Do you realize that doesn't require getting up at 3.45 a.m.? It doesn't, okay? When you're walking down the hall to comfort a crying baby, talk to God. Lord, I need your help right now to be patient with this child the way you are patient with me. 
when you're walking into the cafeteria to eat before your next class, talk to God. Father, show me how to be a good friend to my classmates today, especially the ones that don't know you. When you're walking into a boardroom where the boss man's boss man (laughs) is waiting for you, your presentation, talk to God. King Jesus, help me trust you right now. Help me believe in the depth of my heart that you are in control and that what you think of me matters infinitely more than what all these big wigs and TV cameras in this room ever think of me. Or when you're getting home late from work for the hundredth time and you can tell your spouse this, shall we say, a little frosty, talk to God. (laughs) Father, help me to be humble. Guard me from being defensive, making excuses. Teach me to walk in love and not fight back, even if I feel like I get hit with an airstrike halfway through dinner. Talk to God. Praying without ceasing entails a lifestyle of prayer. I could give many more illustrations, but it's bringing all of us to all of God all throughout the day. It's It's not just the right thing to do. It's an incredible privilege to be able to call upon the name of the Lord like that all day long. Okay, it means a lifestyle. Second, praying without ceasing means we persist in prayer. So at the end of the, the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, Jesus says what? And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I think prayers that go unanswered create one of the most difficult tests of faith that we ever encounter in this life. And I'm not going to belabor on that because anybody I've ever talked to who's following Jesus and has an unanswered prayer knows that's really hard. It's a test. And so we have to decide, will we hold God hostage to doing what we want him to do when we want him to do it? Or will we continue to quietly or not so quietly keep pouring out our heart to the Lord, knowing he does all things well? Even the things we don't understand. Praying without ceasing means we choose the latter option. We we refuse to stop praying simply because God has yet to answer. Instead, we persevere in bringing our request to him even when we have nothing new to say. Why? Because we know the great work of prayer is not informing God of what he does not understand, but rather of continuing to let the Lord carry a burden that is way too big for us. Praying without ceasing means a lifestyle of persistent prayer. That's what he's getting at. Now, remember what I said earlier. What's the big picture? What God requires, God supplies. So that means God doesn't just say, hey, give me a little persistent prayer over here. He affects persistent prayer. He empowers us to pray through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul says, for this is all those commands, referencing all of them with that, end of verse 18, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So how does Jesus enable lifestyle of persistent prayer. 
you very quick answers. <laughs> to beg for elaboration, but we will not. First, the Father hears our prayers because of Jesus. Think about that. We don't have access to God's ear. You don't have access to God's ear because of how perfect you are. Isn't that good news? You don't get more access to God's ear by being more perfect. You don't. It's because Jesus, the only one who is perfect, lived for you, friend, and died for you so that the Father could now welcome you to approach him with what? The exact same confidence God the Son has enjoyed for all eternity. That's stunning. In the same way that Jesus, for all eternity, has never once hesitated to approach his Father, that same confidence he has now given to you. Stunning. Father hears our prayers because of Jesus. Second, the Father answers our prayers through Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 captures this combined dynamic. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Does God anonymously fed X Mercy and grace in time of need to you, Christian. No, he doesn't anonymously FedEx that. Jesus gives it to you. He gives it to you. Why? Because he's a sympathetic high priest. So what does he do? He takes our hand and gives us confidence to approach the Father in prayer. And then after we've prayed, Jesus turns right back around and pours out all we need for life and godliness including the spiritual strength we need to keep on praying when it's hard. And so in both senses, access and provision, a lifestyle of persistent prayer is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, Christian. The persistent prayer God requires of us in Christ, he supplies to us through Christ. A Christian is characterized by persistent prayer. We'll end with this, verse 18. We're also characterized by abiding gratitude. Lord, help. Oh, because, oh, we love to grumble, don't we? Mm -mm. Even when we're smart enough to not do it out loud. Give thanks in all circumstances, Paul says. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I want you to look at that sentence and stare at it because we need to see something here. Paul doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. He doesn't. As if you're obligated to thank God for tragic evil or suffering. What does he say? Prepositions matter. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because you will never encounter a situation or a circumstance in your life, Christian, where you do not have abundant reason to bless the name of the Lord. That's why. Consider just a short list of all the blessings, if you're a Christian, God has given to you in Christ Jesus that the greatest sorrows in this life 
can never take away from you. Listen, God created you, granting you the incredible dignity of being his image bearer. God chose you. Before you were born and had done anything good or bad, he elected you for salvation through Christ. God called you when you had no power to change your own heart. The same voice that spoke the universe into existence spoke life into your soul, enabling you to to see Jesus as your Savior and trust him as your Savior. God justified you. He forgave all your sin and gave you the gift of his spotless righteousness. So in the courtroom of heaven that ultimately counts, you are right now perfect as Jesus is perfect. God sanctified you. He set you apart for himself. Holy as he is holy. And he's even now working in your life to make you more like Jesus. He's going to finish that work. And you know where he does that work the best? In and through suffering. God adopted you. He took you as a sinner and he made you a royal son or daughter of the king. You're his child. You get to call him your father because he is. And the inheritance of his firstborn son, Jesus, is all yours. God glorified you. You've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You've been brought into the kingdom of God. Heaven is your true home. And one day your Savior will come back from heaven to bring you home. And so your future in Christ is completely secure. So, that's just a short review. What do we do with all of that, friend? What do we do with all that? We say with the psalmist, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's what we do, even when we're suffering. Yes. 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 Always. All circumstances. Why? Because our entire existence as a Christian in this world, even in the midst of the greatest sorrow, your life, friend, takes place under the mighty deluge, the ever-flowing waterfall of God's abundant mercies on you in Christ Jesus. You can't go into a suffering or sorrow Christian where that waterfall isn't right over top of. That's why we give thanks in all circumstances. We we bless his name with gratitude in all circumstances. We bless him for making us more like Jesus through our circumstances. We bless him for the assurance of his love and nearness in the midst of our circumstances. And we bless him for the change he will one day work in our circumstances. And we take heart in this. In every situation, we have abundant reason to give thanks because of Jesus. The abiding gratitude God requires of us in Christ Jesus, he supplies to us through Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Impossible. No. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. No matter your personality type, those things should characterize your life, Christian. And how they're expressed will vary from person to person. But their presence should be discernible in the life of every believer. In other words, if you have to convince the people that know you best that you are really rejoicing on the inside, despite all appearances to the contrary, (laughs) 
something's missing. And where you recognize it's missing, remember the good news of the gospel. What God requires of us in Christ, he supplies to us through Christ. If you're familiar with St. Augustine's famous prayer, God answers this one in Jesus. Augustine prayed, command what you will and give what you command. Praise God for Jesus Christ, friends. Because what he requires of us, he supplies to us. What he demands from us, he affects within us. Why? So that in the end, he gets all the glory. It's all the glory. These verses present everyone in this room with an invitation or an opportunity. If you're not a believer in Jesus, then this call, this command, you need to hear in this an invitation from the Lord right now to repent of your sins and come to Christ, to to trust him, to submit to him, to follow him. The, The kind of joy and prayer and gratitude I've just described is not something you can will up in yourself. It is God's will for you in and only in a relationship with Christ Jesus. You need to come to Christ. And if you are a believer, then God's word to you this morning gives you an opportunity to put on humility. Why do I say that? Because before this sermon becomes a distant memory, I have a challenge for you. I want you to ask a fellow brother or sister that you trust to give you an honest assessment, preferably today. Do you see, brother, sister, who knows me well, do you see enduring joy? Do you see persistent prayer? Do you see abiding gratitude in my life? By the grace of God, where am I strong? By the grace of God, where do I need to grow? And then, lest you walk away discouraged, ask the same person, can you help me understand how God has helped you grow in those things? God gives grace to the humble friends. So seek help to grow from one another, confident that what God requires, God supplies. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many situations in our life where we can feel like people are demanding things from us that we are utterly incapable of producing. We can feel that in a marriage. We can feel that in a friendship. We can feel that at work. And Lord, I pray today that you would so fix our eyes on Jesus that as you kindly remind us of your command to rejoice and pray and give thanks, that we would not lose heart, we would not despair, we would not get discouraged, we would not be condemned, we would be convicted, we would repent, we'd ask forgiveness, but then I pray you would fill us with hope. Hope in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that what you require of us in Christ, you supply to us through Christ. Do that over and over and over again, we pray, even as we sing this song right now, to bless your holy name. Amen.